So this morning we're continuing our series, How to Defend Your Faith and Stay Friends. And if you're new this morning, this series is based on a book that I have written and didn't really start out to write a book. Um, It's really the story of two friends start out in youth group together. Um, I started going to church when I was 17 and a half years old, and my first experience was in someone's house. Um, Long story short, the youth pastor broke out some Play-Doh. I was kind of a hood growing up in the apartment complex in New York where I grew up, and we didn't play with Play-Doh when I was 17 years old. So I wanted to get out of there. Couldn't get out because I put myself at the top of the stairs because I wanted everyone in front of me and was stuck. And so um, my friend and I were kind of planning our strategy to leave, not because I didn't like it. I really enjoyed being there with all the other students. It was the first time I had really been in a situation where there were that many people where someone didn't start a fight. So I thought that was uh, a good start. And, uh, and we were about to leave, and uh, a young woman named Emily and another woman named Patty, who were, uh, were girls then, they're women now, uh, came up and gave us about 40 smile faces because a youth pastor said, make something for someone that reminds you of something or some positive experience. And so they walked up with a cardboard uh, box and, and gave us 40 of these smile faces made out of Play-Doh and said, we're all glad you're here. And it really transformed my life. Well, um, we went, I went to college, and you know they went off in, in their lives. And 30 years later, um, I was on the Facebook, and I saw this Facebook request to be friends, and ended up being Emily. And so we started a conversation. She uh, said that really she didn't go to youth group for the spiritual aspect. She went for the social aspect. And so she kind of walked away from the whole thing as she got older. And so we've been going back and forth. And she's been throwing out questions. And I've been trying to answer questions for about eight years now. And that's where this book comes from. So as we go through this, if you're saying, I didn't get all what he said, most of it's in here. Um, And and then at the end of the week, or really in the middle of the week, I send out... um, an email that says this week with Pastor Jeff, and it's pretty much the sermon kind of rewritten a little bit, um, that you can have that, you can download it, you can, you know, you can make copies of it, and you can read through it again, because I know these arguments are sometimes difficult to grasp first time through. But that's the foundation of what we're talking about, so let's kick it off. I feel that it's an inexplicable leap that the cause of the universe, no matter what you call it, is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent personal creator, all humankind's good traits on steroids, and none of the bad. It's tidy. Here's the rub. For those of us who are on the outside of the box, all that stuff that comes from this tidy solution feels contrived. And frankly, some of the details are devilish indeed. The hardest part to swallow is when you run into a genuine philosophical stumbling block. And the answer is always more faith. Why does God allow suffering and evil? Well, God has a plan, and we just have to trust him. It's the moral equivalent of being shushed. That response not only does not satisfy, it actually repels. Emily, the question of suffering and evil is a topic that not only, that's not only on the minds and hearts of those outside the box, as you call it, but within the church as well. I can find your, understand your frustration with those who would give an incomplete answer to a very complex question. I've tried not to dodge the tough questions, so let me try to address this one. Two quick thoughts as I begin. First, Christians don't deny that we should search for a meaningful answer to the problem. But 
Do those who deny God have a better answer to the problem of evil and suffering? As I've stated before, when asked the question, their silence is often deafening. Second, when a person addresses the question of evil, they assume a reference point, a moral law, and logically a moral lawgiver. And that is what they're trying to disprove. If there's no moral lawgiver, then there's no moral law. And if there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, then there's no evil. So I guess I'm not sure what the question is. Your friend, Jeff. Just kidding. I'll try to answer the question anyway. So let me start by saying the Bible gives a good deal of attention because I think what people think is like, you know, the Bible doesn't really talk about it. You know, throw out because the Christian response to suffering when people ask sometimes is, well, God has a plan. And God won't give you more than you can handle, which is not in the Bible. Um, But God has a plan. And she said it's like the moral equivalent of being shushed. It's annoying. That kind of answer is like just simple and it's annoying. But the Bible gives a great deal of attention to the reality of suffering. In the Bible, it's not hidden at all. Suffering and, and evil and all these things, they're not hidden. They're not dismissed at all. I mean, in the Old Testament, there are so many questions about suffering. The books of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Job, all deal with this question. They all, they all deal with this subject. Almost a third, one-third of the Psalms, the prayers of the Old Testament, one-third are cries that come from disappointment, from pain, from discouragement, from doubt. When, when we come to the New Testament, however, we, we don't see, seem to find the same questions that we find in the Old Testament. We just don't seem to find them. Not that they're not, that they're completely eliminated. Like it, it's not like the, the New Testament completely eliminates these questions, but there's, there seems to be like a, a peace and a confidence and a joy and a hope that not even the greatest suffering can overwhelm. Not even the greatest suffering can overwhelm. Something, something has made a dramatic difference in the New Testament. Something has changed in the New Testament. And the answer is clear. God now has a face. God has made himself known in the person of Jesus. So first, to build a framework, we need to talk about love and freedom. If we're going to build a foundation, if we're going to build a framework here, we need to talk about love and we need to talk about freedom. Christians believe that we were created, each of us was created to exist in a loving relationship with God and with others. So we were created to connect, to be in relationship with God and with other people. However, love cannot exist if there's no freedom to choose. This is important. Love cannot exist if we don't, if all of us, if human beings don't have the freedom to choose. If you want someone to love you, you can't force them to love you. You can't say, like, love me or else. That's not how, that's not how it works. 
That's not how it works. We may want it to work that way sometimes, maybe when we're dating or whatever else. We want the people to love us, just love me, forget it. But that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In creating us, God loved us enough to give us the freedom to reject that love. So we were created, we're created to be in fellowship with God and with others, to be in relationship with God and with others. In order to have a loving relationship, Each person in the world has to have the ability to choose to love or not to love. We have to have that that freedom. The problem is we've taken that freedom and we've basically distorted it. We've distorted that freedom. We've turned away from God and we've misused this gift of free will that God has given to each one of us. Instead, we've, we've chosen, if you will, alternatives to God. Instead of having that relationship with God and connecting with God, we've chosen alternatives to God. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So we have chosen to walk away from God. Many people have chosen to walk away from God. And we're not only, we're not only free to turn away from God, we're free to stay away. I mean, that's, that was Emily's choice. She chose at one point, we talk about it, I talk about it in the book, she actually talks about it. She chose at one point just to say, there is no God and walk away. And she's choosing at this point to stay away. Many of the things though that people struggle with when it comes to Christianity are brought about by their own choices, by people's own choices. And we need to understand this. So many times you see people shaking their fist at God and blaming God, but we need to understand that many of the things that that people are frustrated about when it comes to Christianity, these are choices that they make in their own lives. Suffering was not God's choice, but ours. That's what the Bible clearly tells us. That's number one. Second, the freedom to choose leads to another problem. This whole freedom to choose leads to another problem, the problem of evil. Emily's question is actually twofold. It's not just the problem of suffering, it's a problem of evil, and they're different. Okay? So the twofold question here, the problem of suffering and the problem of evil. Now, I'd like everyone to take a moment, and I want you to think about this, okay? I want you to think this through for a moment. Who is responsible for most most, okay, don't get lost here in the weeds, who is responsible for most of the suffering in the world? From, from his, all the way through. Who's, res, who's responsible for World War I? Who's responsible for World War II? Who's responsible for all the wars, wars in American history, pretty much? In most of history, who's responsible for the wars? Who's responsible for the genocide in Rwanda? Where over a million people were slaughtered with machetes and all that kind of stuff. And bodies were floating down the river. Who's responsible for the genocide in Rwanda and Darfur? Who's responsible for the illogical, uh, the, the, the destruction of, of our, our, our ecology, if you will. Our, our environment. Who's responsible for that? I'm not talking about global warming. Don't get political at all on me. Who's responsible for the polluting of our oceans? Who's responsible for basically um, the stripping of our forests and all the problems that we face when it comes to when it comes to our environment, all the environmental issues? Who's responsible for most, if not all, of those things? Who's re- here? I'll give you a more specific. Who's responsible for the pain of your past? Who's responsible for your present suffering? 
Think about that. Now, I would submit to you that not all suffering is caused by human actions, but the greatest percentage of it is. The greatest percentage of it is. You just need to think this all the way through. I love when people say to me, well, if there's a God, then why are children starving in Africa? I'm sure many of you heard that, right? If there's a God, then why are little children, innocent children, starving in Africa? And I used to spend so much time kind of trying to walk that through with people. And then all of a sudden, actually, it was early on in my Christian walk. I did a study. I did research. And realize that the United States and Canada could feed the entire world every single day. Every single day. Why don't we? Hmm. I looked that up. Economics and politics. That's why. So when people say to me now, well, if there's a loving God, why are innocent children starting in Africa? I say, you better be careful with your tone of voice because that's the exact same question God's going to ask you when you get to heaven. He gave you the ability. He's given us the ability, the technology. He's given us everything we need to take care of all the starving children all around the world. Why don't we? Economics and politics. You've got to think through what, what, what the implications of some of the questions that we ask. The Bible teaches us that we are free, okay, responsible beings. And with that freedom, with that freedom, and this is what bothers me so much, with that freedom, we often choose evil over good. We often choose wrong over right, right? We, we often choose willfulness over God. We often choose selfishness over love. Instead of doing what's best for you, I do what's best for me. Instead of suffering with you, I don't want to engage in that. I just take a step back. I allow you to suffer on your own. Instead of doing what's right for you, I do what's right for me. Suffering over love. We choose that. That's our choice. We make those choices. Most of the time, we make those choices. And human beings then, in the church, sometimes outside of the church, almost always, blame God for the consequences. We make the choice, and then we blame God for the consequences. I, I, I got to tell you, I've had over the last 30 some odd years as being a pastor, I've had so many people come to me after they've chosen to go out and maybe engage in sexual relationship with someone or something else. They come and they end up getting pregnant or they end up getting a STD and then they'll sit with me and they'll say, they'll be very upset about it. How could God do this to me? And I try to explain the birds and the bees to him, how things work, you know. How could God, how could God let this happen? How could God do this to me? Why would God choose to? Now take that example and spread it across. How many choices do we end up making? God, how could you let me be in this relation? How could you let this happen to me? Was that not a choice that you made? Did you consult God Did you sit down and pray about that before you entered into that relationship? Did you sit down and consult God before you took that job? Did you sit down and consult God before you chose to go down that road? Did you consult God before you chose to make that decision? Most of the time, no. But then when things go wrong, based upon my choice as Jeff Greer, I then blame God for where I am in my situation. See, the Bible emphasizes strongly the link between suffering and evil. We live in a fallen world. And we are a fallen, corrupt race. We are capable of so much. We are, we are seriously capable of so much good. We're created in the image of God. So we, I'm capable of doing so many good things. But somehow, given the time, we seem to spoil. We seem to spoil what we touch. 
yeah, who needs more rainforest? Let's just cut them all down because we need that land for, and then all of a sudden we get deserts and, oh, I can't, how, you know, how we start questioning God when we make our choices. We may often feel morally superior, like sometimes it's like, this is, this is again one of our, and I'm, hear me out. I mean, I, I don't want everybody feeling like horrible about themselves, but I'm just trying to speak truth here. When people attack my God and they're asking me questions, I try to point out the reality of life, how things really work. And see, well, we, we think sometimes we're morally superior. And it's like, it's not us, it's the reality is, it's the other person, right? But the, the, here's the real, here's the reality. We're all, we are all part of the problem. I mean, I'm a part of the problem. You talk about evil and suffering in the world. I'm a part of the problem. We like to think that it's everyone else. It's, you know, it's like, okay, all the problem we have in America, whose fault is it? It's those people. It's that group over here. If they would just stop, if they would just do. And so it's not my problem. It's their problem. It's those people who cause all the suffering. But the reality is, here's the reality. We need not look beyond our own hands and our own hearts, guys. I mean, it starts at home. It starts, I mean, right at home. This is home. This is home. I need not look beyond my own hands and my own heart and my own attitude and my own choices sometimes when it comes to the suffering of the people that go on, at least goes on around me. People ask, well, if there's a God, if there's a, if there, why doesn't God, if he's a loving God, why doesn't he just wipe out, why doesn't he just, how, I've, how many times have you heard this? If there's a loving God, why doesn't he just wipe out all evil and suffering? If he just wipe it out, everything would be great. By now, I think you can probably answer that question on your own. At least start to think it through. Why doesn't God just wipe out all suffering and evil from the world? That would make it all better. Show of hands. I want to see, I want to see everyone participating here. Show of hands. Who here has ever caused anyone any type of suffering ever? Raise your hand. So 99% of you are truthful and one's a liar. Right. No. <laughs> we, we have all caused suffering to end suffering. Okay. To end suffering, God must eliminate the cause of suffering. Raise your hand again. Raise your hand if you cause any kind. So to eliminate suffering, God then has to eliminate the cause of suffering. That's you and that's me. It's for that reason that God has, it is for that reason that God has, listen to my words, not yet intervened. He has not yet intervened and put an end to suffering and evil once and for all. It's for that very reason. The Bible clearly says that one day he's going to. This is going to happen. But that time has not yet come. By his grace, in God's grace, and his mercy, and his love, and his patience. His patience. He gives us an opportunity. He gives me. He gives all of you an opportunity to change and to turn to him. That's why he's waiting and he's giving all of us an opportunity to change our hearts and to turn to him. And this is so important. I need you really to focus here. It's because of this inseparable link, okay, this inseparable link between suffering and evil that God could not deal with one, one without taking care of the other. God can't deal with one without taking care of the other. Because the implications of taking care of one means what we just talked about earlier. Just a quick side note here. 
I recognize, and I don't don't want people to get lost here and be thinking this the whole sermon. I'm just going to say it. I recognize that all suffering, and I didn't say that, I did not say that in the beginning, but I'm going to say this again. I recognize that all suffering, okay, is not come from people, okay? It's not caused by man, but we still, the Bible says, we live in a fallen world. We live in a corrupt and fallen world, a sinful world. That corruption leaves us with a world filled with defects, physical defects, right? Even when you're born or whatever, things happen internally because we live in a fallen world. So there's sickness. It's going to happen. Catastrophes happen. We just had, what, Hurricane Michael come through Florida, 175 miles an hour. A lot of people lost their lives. It decimated that part of the country. There are catastrophes, natural disasters that happen. We live in a fallen world. There's deterioration. If I left this outside, it wouldn't get brighter and nicer and cleaner. It would get dirtier and it would start to, metal would start to break down and rust. It would deteriorate. We live in a fallen world. Things deteriorate. So I understand, I totally understand that it's not just people. We, we, we can discuss, we will, we can discuss the implications of that later on. We will discuss the implications of that, okay, down the road here in this series. But I don't want to focus on it right now. But I wanted to say it because I know a lot of people are thinking it, and I don't want you to get lost. I want you to just focus on this point this morning. If you don't believe in God, it is very hard to understand that 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 God is a God of love, but for me here here's I want you to I want you to kind of try to grasp this concept. For me, I can have peace as a believer in Jesus Christ, knowing that God is just. Okay, I am, I openly admit to you. If you're a skeptic here this morning and you're like, oh, I don't believe it, I openly admit I don't have all the answers. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children. I am sharing what's revealed. I openly admit that some things I am incapable of understanding, so I can't pass it on to you. But that's just life. That's just life in general. But I believe that God is just, and, and God has already acted, hear, hear me, God has already acted to deal with the problem of evil, regardless of its origin, through the death of Jesus Christ, through the person of Jesus Christ. Regardless of where evil comes from, whether it's Jeff's choice or catastrophe, regardless of where the evil comes from, God has already dealt with that, okay, regardless of the origin, he's already dealt with that in the person of Jesus Christ. God does actually have a plan. But that's not the final, that's not my only answer to the question. But God does have a plan, and God has already implemented his plan, and now it's just working forward. And in doing so, he has ultimately guaranteed the elimination of suffering. Because of this plan, regardless of where the evil comes from, God has dealt with it through Jesus Christ. And because of that, ultimately suffering is going to be annihilated. It's it's a fact waiting to happen. It's coming. Richard Halverson, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, said this. He was the great physician. And in the finest tradition of medical science, he was unwilling to remain preoccupied with the symptoms when he could destroy the disease. Jesus Christ was unwilling to settle for anything less than the elimination of the cause of all evil in history. 
God does have a plan, and Jesus is the plan, and Jesus is going to overcome it all. So let me stop again. Let's just stop right there and say this. You can't eliminate suffering without eliminating the cause of suffering. Why doesn't God? Why doesn't God? You can't eliminate suffering without eliminating the cause of suffering. You cannot eliminate the cause of suffering without eliminating us. And God is not choosing to do that. He's choosing to give. He's patient. And he wants us to turn to him. So we can have a relationship with him. Ultimately be restored in relationship with him. God chose to enter this world in the person of Jesus Christ. That was his answer. And on that topic, okay, you say, well, see, God doesn't understand my suffering. He doesn't get it. Let me, let me just kind of address that for a second. Jesus Christ, God himself, comes down in the form of Christ, okay, Jesus Christ. And he's born in a manger. The king of the universe comes down and he's born in a manger, okay? He spent the first part of his life in a foreign country. Ever been in a foreign country for very long? It's uncomfortable, to say the least, sometimes. Some, you know you know what I'm talking about. You know, people maybe not speaking the same language. It's not your people. It's just a little bit uncomfortable. It's difficult, especially for him. He grew up without recognition. He grew up without privilege. He worked as a carpenter. More, more likely, he was a stonemason, okay, which is even more difficult. Um, he was poor. And as, he, as an adult in his public ministry, he never had the comforts that you and I enjoy. I mean, I'm, I'm a minister. To, uh, I minister. I'm a minister of Christ. Okay? But I have the comforts that I enjoy. He never, he never enjoyed the comforts that, that I do right now. Throughout his ministry, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, totally perfect, was accused of being a deceiver and a liar and a lawbreaker. He was called demon-possessed. They, they, they said that he was a drunkard. They attacked him and they, they ridiculed him for caring about prostitutes and tax collectors and, and lepers and sinners. He was constantly ridiculed for doing what we would consider the right thing to do. But in his culture, constantly ridiculed. He was kicked out of the synagogue, okay? Not only that, every time the poor guy turned around, they were threatening to stone him or throw him off a cliff. Finally, he was betrayed, okay? He was basically deserted. Who was he deserted by? He wasn't deserted by his enemies. He was deserted by the people closest to him. Start feeling all that he was feeling throughout his life. He was deserted by those people. And then he endured a brutal flogging where they took a whip with pieces of metal and shards of things. And they beat him until his back was open. You can see to the inside of him. Then they took a crown of thorns and they jammed it. And the thorns are like this big and jammed it into his skull. And then they naked hung him on a wooden cross. Okay. In front of everyone. The humiliation of being naked hanging on a cross. For what was your punishment? Because you loved humanity and you came to die for humanity. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says, He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was familiar with suffering. My point is this. If Jesus is God, as the Bible claims he is, teaches that he is and he is, then our God understands our suffering. He's not some outside observer of our suffering. He's a participation. He's in participation with us within our suffering. Here's the thing too. 
all the physical, all the physical suffering that I just described, all the mental suffering that I just described, it, it, it pales, hear me, absolutely pales in significance to another kind of suffering that Jesus Christ endured on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, you got to understand this, he was fully God and fully man. So when Jesus died on the cross, he, he chose to take our sin, all of the evil, all of the suffering, all of the misery, all of the sin, everything in human history, Past, present, and future. He took that upon himself. Here's the difficult part to comprehend as a human being. He was fully God, so he knew he could, he could process all of humanity's evil, okay? All of it. Now he's taken it upon himself. Why do you think he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because he thought the nails were going to hurt? All the shame, all the anguish, all the evil, all of it. He took it upon himself on the cross. Jesus endured that on the cross. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, Christ carried the burdens of our sins. Christ carried, he carried with him the burden of our sin on the cross. Jesus Christ is familiar with, with suffering. In some remarkable way, he was able to carry that upon himself. All the past, present, future sins, all the evil, all of it on himself, hanging on a cross. If you step back, all right, if you just step back and try to see what I'm talking about from an eternal perspective, the answer begins to take shape. The answer, why would a loving, how could God, how could God, if we, if we just take a step back and try to see it from an eternal perspective, the answer begins to take shape. The God who chose to give you and me freedom, freedom of choice, now takes upon himself the consequences of that choice. The God who chose because he loved us and wanted us to love him, which means he has to give us freedom of choice. The God that gave us freedom of choice now takes on the consequences of your, my choices. Why don't you just kill us all? He had a better, better plan. He would take it on himself. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What the first Adam couldn't do, what the first Adam failed to do, the Bible calls Jesus' second Adam, the second Adam accomplished. What was once broken, a relationship with God, has now been restored through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered at the point of our greatest need. What was our greatest need? To be brought back into fellowship with God. This is so important to the whole idea of this question. To be brought back into relationship, into fellowship with God. And that for Jesus meant the greatest possible suffering. That, my friends, is love. That's love. I take the consequences. I take everything upon myself. This is so important. The problem of people reconciling human suffering with the existence of God is only without solution if we don't truly understand the meaning of love. 
Let me, say that, let me say that again. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of God is only without solution when we don't understand, when we can't comprehend the true meaning of love. For the Christian, a true understanding of love begins at the death and ends at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his book, Why Do People Suffer?, James Jones tells a story of a school that collapsed, killing all of the teachers and most of the children. Here's how the, this is the story. He says, there was a little boy who was badly injured and rushed to the hospital. For hours, a team of doctors and nurses did everything they could to save his life while his mother waited anxiously outside, in the, outside the operating room. After seven hours of surgery, the little boy died. Instead of letting someone else go and tell the mother of her loss, the surgeon went himself. As he broke the horrible news, the mother became hysterical, and in her grief and pain, she attacked the surgeon. She beat on his chest with her fists, but he didn't push her away. Instead, the doctor held her to himself tightly until her uncontrollable sobbing ended, and she rested exhausted in his arms. At that moment, the surgeon began to weep with this mother. Tears streamed down his face as his own grief overwhelmed him. What no one knew was that he had come to the hospital right after hearing that his only son had been killed in the same school. See, we may feel angry at God, with God at times, But he has not, listen, he has not dismissed himself from our suffering. He's not some cosmic spirit floating out there watching us all suffer from a distance. God is actively involved in my life. He's actively involved in my suffering. When I cry, he cries. What I feel, he feels. When I'm, when I'm having anguish, when I'm in anguish, he's in anguish. He walks with me, and when I can't walk any longer, and I can't go any further, when I'm given more than I can handle, I rest in his strength and not my own. That's what gets me through each and every day, knowing that I have a God who understands what I'm going through, has defeated death, And ultimately will wipe out suffering. And I will live in a new heaven and new earth. I will live. I will live out the longings of my heart. But God is not some cosmic figure that doesn't enter into our suffering. He is intimately involved in our suffering. He is a participant with us in our pain. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Gave him to what I just described for us. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. New heaven, new earth, evil, suffering, wiped out, gone from our existence. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, put it this way. There cannot be a loving God, people say, because if there was, and he looked upon the world, his heart would break. The church points to the cross and says, it did break. My understanding and attitude as it relates to suffering is seen in the context of the cross. 
That's where I, that's, that's where my, my understanding and my attitude about suffering comes from. It comes from and is seen in the context of the cross. Evil and suffering are ultimately conquered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an exclamation point on suffering. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an exclamation point. When I, when, when I'm trying, what I'm trying to point out here is that the answer to the problem of suffering is not a concept. It is a person. Let me say that again. The answer to the problem of suffering is not a concept. It's not a concept, not an argument. It is a person. It is a person. When, listen, this is so important. When people raise the question of suffering, they raise the question in the context. Think about this when people do it for you, when they do it to you. Why did, well, how could? When people raise the, the subject of suffering, okay, it's in, it's in the, it's in a, it's in a specific context. It's in the context of someone. It's not in, it's not in some theory. It's in the context of someone. It's God. They're asking the question, why did he? Why doesn't he? Why couldn't he? It's in a context. It's in a personal context. It's not a concept. They're not asking about a concept. They're framing it. They frame the question. They frame the very question, if you will. They raise the question of suffering in the context of someone, God. Not something, not some concept, not some theory. We don't just ask this question as human beings in a vacuum. We ask it in the context of relationship. And God's answer to our question was not to give us a bunch of words, but to give us a person, to give us himself, to give us Jesus Christ. That was his answer to our question. When I suffer, when Jeff Greer suffers, he needs relationship. Suffering's not going away. If I can't answer this question for you perfectly this morning... Suffering and evil are not going away. And you have to ask yourself again, G.K. Chesterton said, when things get difficult, when things get really tough, the tendency is to turn away from God. But in heaven's name to what? Because there is no answer outside of God. There is with God. There's none without God. When I suffer, here's the bottom. When I suffer, I need relationship. When, a ch- when your child is sick, they don't ask you. They don't want an intellectual answer for why they're sick. When a child is sick, what do they want? They want their, my mom. Or their dad. But they want their mom. I, I got to tell you, I was a youth pastor for years. And I never, this always struck me. I was youth pastor. I had some big boys in my youth group. Big old boys. And, I, and this happened every single time. There was one specific story where this young man, we were on this missions trip or we were on some retreat or something. We were climbing up these rocks and he slipped and he gashed his knee wide open. Oh man, it was nasty. He's like, you okay? Everybody's asking 30, 40, 50 people. Are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm good. Oh, I'm good. Yeah, fine. Yeah. You know, give me a, give me a needle and thread. I'll sew it up myself. You know what I mean? He was tough. And we got back to the hotel. And this is when they had phones. Not cell phones. So he went over to get on the phone. It's this little boothy thing, and there's a phone inside of it. It's really cool. He went inside the phone booth and to talk to his mom. And guess what he did when he started talking to his mom, when he heard his mom's voice? He cried. 
All the big guys, 250 pounds of them cry every... As soon as they hear their mom's voice, they cry. Because when you're suffering, you want relationship. You want the person that you know is going to comfort you, who's going, who's for your whole life has come around you and taking care of you. I don't care how big you are, when you hear her voice and you're going through suffering, you cry. Because we, when we suffer, we need relationship. I truly believe, that, believe that's at the heart of this question. The Bible tells us to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to suffer with those who are suffering, to, to get engaged in people suffering, to physically get yourself engaged. Instead of seriously, someone's over here, and we want to take a step back. All things work together for good, brother, those who love the Lord. Let me throw a couple more verses at you from a distance, because I don't want to engage you in that depth of suffering. Or my favorite, like I said before, oh, God won't give you more than you can handle, which is completely unbiblical. It's not in the scriptures anywhere. God does give, the world gives us more than we can handle, and it's by the power of Christ I draw on that power to overcome when I get more than I can handle. It's not more than he can handle, it's more than I can handle. Show of hands, how many people here have been dealt a hand sometimes more than you can handle? Yet darn right. That's a lie. Don't please tell people when they say that not to say it. it when people have nervous breakdowns, when people are overwhelmed by their suffering, when they, you know, when they're just beyond what they can handle because emotionally they're beaten down and someone says, God won't give you more than you can handle. Are you joking? Jesus sweat blood. I can do better than that? I don't think so. When I'm given more than I can handle, I give it to him because he can handle it. That's why I have a relationship with him. That's relationship. God, God will overcome and, and, and take upon himself what I can't handle. All the intellectual answers in the world pale in comparison, my friends, to divine or even human compassion and comfort. Let me say that again. All of the intellectual answers in the world pale in comparison to divine or even human compassion and comfort. That's what God has given us, the body of Christ, to give us each other. You know, here's the deal. Even if I could give you the reason... Even if I could give you the reason for why you lost your child, for example, and I could tell you all the good that came out of that child's loss, all the good things, okay? And it's true. There's a lot. Of, if God could download it, I could tell you throughout history all the things that have come from the loss of your child. That's still not going to take away all of your suffering because it's broken relationship. That's not going to take away all of your suffering. Even my most profound answers are not going to take away all of your suffering. They're not going to eliminate all of your pain. The mind can, the mind cannot totally reconcile what the heart can experience in this life. The mind cannot totally reconcile what the heart can experience in this life. That's just the reality of it. Now I know our time this morning has just kind of scratched the surface. That's why we're going to do this for a couple of weeks. This, uh, this whole topic of suffering is going to take more than one sermon. So we're going to do that. And I want to say this morning, too, that I, want, I think we should practice what we preach. And that's why we started having a time of prayer over here after the second service and first service. If you're going, let me tell you something. I have spent the last three or four weeks in hospitals, at hospice, with, doing funeral 
um, people who had their legs amputated, people who have cancer, people who, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I know people in this room have, have great loss that they've experienced recently and, and they have things that are going on in their marriage, they have things that are going on with their children, they have things that are going on physically they don't want to talk to anybody else about. But here's the thing. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ and we want to practice what we preach. And so we want to make sure that we will have people over here after the service that will pray with you. If you need prayer, we have people who are going to pray with you. And I just, let me just close out by saying this. You know, I, I want to openly recognize my inability to answer such a profound question. Uh, you know, you, you, when people ask these kinds of questions, you know, you know they're, they're, it's coming from the heart. They're not asking an intellectual question. They're asking an emotional question. They're asking it because they've experienced things and they want an answer. That's why the Bible says always be ready to give an answer for the truth that you have. And do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect because the people asking the questions, even if they get angry, a lot of times they're angry because they've asked this question before when they were younger and then they got teenagers and they were a little older and they get the same. That's what, that's what, that's what Emily was saying. It's the equivalent of being shushed. It's annoying. Answer the question. Don't tell me God has a plan. He does have a plan, but it's more than that. Tell him the plan. Let's tell them the plan. They're asking from the depths of their heart, not from the tops of their minds. Let's bow our heads together. God, thank you for this time that we can spend together. Again, God, again, I, I recognize the the limitations of my own finite mind to answer such incredibly profound questions. And I pray, dear God, that that I would do it in an effective way that would at least touch hearts and and give some answer to these difficult questions. Pray, dear God, that you would help each one of us to, in a sense, try to at least memorize and take to heart the answers that we can give. And then allow your Holy Spirit, by faith, to grab people's hearts and turn them to you. Because the reality is, Lord, G.K. Chesterton is exactly right. The tendency is to turn away from you when we don't get the answers we want or we don't... But in heaven's name to what? In heaven's name to what? We love you, we praise you, we thank you for being a God who wants to reason with us, who wants to talk with us, who wants to sit down with us and, and engage in these kinds of conversations. God, I pray that you would speak to each person's heart where they are personally in this struggle. That you would speak to them way beyond what I can do. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory for everything you're going to do in our lives and what you've already done. God, thank you for what you've already done in my life and for the lives of people here. We praise you for that. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.